The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see a full room here on this special day when you're here to experience Cairn and joining uh, our students. So good morning to all of you who are visiting today. I look forward to my time with you later on this afternoon. Uh, greetings to all of you who are students in the room and all of you who are joining us uh, via live stream or who will catch this uh, in another way uh, in the coming days. It's good to be here with you this morning and to have a chance to continue uh, the series uh, for this year, this series on taking one another seriously. Uh, for those of you who have been around this fall, you know that what I've been doing in my time uh, in chapel is to focus on just that, the passages in the, the Bible that specifically address our relationships to one another. And uh, what we've been doing is teasing out of those passages a number of serious exhortations from Scripture that should affect the way we think and the way we feel and the way we live in community, the way we view and treat and care for one another. And so this series on taking one another seriously uh, is something that we'll do throughout this year. And this morning, I want to focus on another installment of that series. Uh, this past summer, when I was thinking, as I do each year, about what to do in chapel during the times that I have in front of the students and the Karen community, I was thinking seriously about the context in which we find ourselves. As Dean Porcello already prayed, uh, the issues that are swirling around us, whether they're related to the health crisis or to social and cultural tensions around race and racism or the political climate, the economic and social and relational implications of all of that, it is imperative for us as the followers of Jesus to think about and to address and to deal with all of those realities in a way that is explicitly and intentionally biblical a way that is explicitly and intentionally consistent with our faith, our Christian worldview, the teaching of the Bible, and an outworking of the gospel in our lives, and specifically according to the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. And so that's really what we've been doing all year. And we began by looking at a very familiar passage, which has become the context for our thinking this year from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to that group of Christians with whom he is extremely familiar, who, who, a group that he loves dearly. But he gives them what is strong medicine, I think. He is addressing uh, that group of first century Christians who were experiencing hardship in their world, tension and conflict and pressure from without, and as a result, division and strife within. The one another passages that we find in the Bible are extremely profound and penetrating. They are sometimes hard to take, but they're very clear, they're very practical, they're very profound, and they can't be ignored. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to those Christians whom he loved at Philippi, said this in chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
we were actually talking about that passage as framing our thinking for the year about one another because it's that passage that outlines for us the construct of biblical otherness. That it is not enough for us to be nice to one another. It's not enough for us to do kind things for one another. Random acts of kindness won't get it done. What is at the root of our problem is that we're swimming in a context. Christians have always been swimming in it. We wrestle with the world and the flesh and the devil where we are, find ourselves struggling to be self-absorbed or self-indulging or self-oriented or self-occupied and self-motivated. But the way of the cross and the way of Jesus is completely different. And the Apostle Paul says, no, what we need to do is to consider others more significant than ourselves. That is, the way we judge one another and evaluate one another and look at one another, we see the other as more significant than ourselves. And as a result, we actually look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And what I said at the beginning of the semester when we were beginning this series was you'd be hard-pressed to find any relational dynamic that is causing us problems and consternation. Socially, culturally, individually, institutionally here, you'd be hard-pressed to find any kind of relational dynamic or, 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 or tension or conflict that wouldn't be remedied simply by applying this passage to the way we look at one another and ourselves. Whether we're dealing with the issue of race or we're dealing with the issue of, of, of uh, affiliation or we're dealing with the issue of, of our, our interpersonal dynamics or we're dealing with other concerns that we have in the world, the, the teaching is clear that as Christians, we follow the example of Jesus who emptied himself and became a servant, taking on the form of humankind. The creator takes on the form of creation and goes to death, not just death, death on a cross, an act of humiliation. Jesus is put to death in the most humiliating way the Romans could conceive of. That's the context for the entire semester as we've been thinking about this, that passage in Philippians chapter 2. And so I want to continue this morning on that one another, taking one another seriously, thinking about biblical otherness, that we would, uh, that we would continue to reflect upon the importance of Christ-like otherness with all humility, thinking about the significance of others and the interests of others. But listen, considering others to be more significant than ourselves and attending to the interest of others, as Philippians 2 teaches, means taking the act of serving one another seriously. And that's where I want to call our attention this morning, this issue of serving one another and what that means and how that has impact on the way we think about biblical otherness and the importance of taking one another seriously. There's another passage from the Apostle Paul that strikes me when I think about this issue of serving one another. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, writing to those Christians whom he had a great deal of affection for, writes another letter to the church at Galatia, scolding them for their distortion of the gospel. In fact, they're so harsh with one another that what they're doing is they're actually forcing Gentile Christians who have come to faith in Jesus to undergo circumcision. They're adding to the gospel of grace a legal standard, a standard of the law. They are perverting and twisting and adding to the gospel of grace. And the Apostle Paul is not happy about that. 
But it's interesting that in the midst of all the other doctrinal things that Paul outlines in the book of Galatians, all the things that he drives at with regard to that false teaching and the pollution of the gospel, he inserts this in chapter 5 where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, freedom from the law, freedom in Christ. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, he says, serve one another. It's very interesting that what Paul says is instead of judging one another and putting these standards on one another and giving your flesh an opportunity to boast or thinking about yourself and how good you are. Rather, he says, what we should be doing is serving one another through love. So far in this series, we've talked about loving one another. We talked about exhorting one another and encouraging one another. Today, I want to focus on this issue of serving one another, but we should see it as directly tied to the gospel. The Apostle Paul is addressing a false teaching, a heretical teaching that is adding legalism to the gospel of grace by forcing Gentile Christians to be circumcised and says, no, listen, one of the things we need to remember is we've been set free, but our, our freedom should not be an opportunity for the flesh, but rather we should, through love, serve one another. It's incredibly profound when you think about what the Apostle Paul is saying, that instead of having this kind of harshness towards one another, one of the things you must do is remember that you're to love one another, and that love should be expressed through your serving one another. It's a very important thing that the the Apostle Paul does here. Now, look, to put this in the context of what we've been talking about all semester and the way I think we should be thinking about our lives in this world as Christians all the time is we are necessarily pointed upstream as Christians. From the moment we become a follower of Jesus Christ, all of our orientation should change. Our thoughts about things should change. The things that matter to us should change. Our priorities, our judgments, all of those things should be shaped by the person and teaching of Jesus Christ and by the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. It should change us. And as a result of that, it should affect the way we think about and treat one another. And what Paul does here in talking about the flesh is show us that the early church, the early Christians, struggled in the same way you and I did. They, the human beings are predisposed to think about themselves. And I would argue that in the day in which we find ourselves, that is a critical issue for us to constantly be thinking about as Christians. Now, when I was coming up and being discipled as a young Christian, we talked a lot about sort of being self-oriented and the selfishness of culture and how easy it was to be preoccupied with ourselves and think about our own self-interests. And I remember even then thinking, well, everybody in every context should be able to say that because that's our human nature. We worry about us and me and my and mine when the pressure comes. The difference, though, is when I was coming up and when some of you were coming up, uh, there was always, there's always been a problem for us as human beings in this world to be preoccupied with ourselves, the struggle that we have with the flesh. But when the culture and the world around us piles on, that gets even harder. And when I was coming up, there wasn't this thing called a selfie. I mean, just think about the cultural implication of it, right? We're so enamored with ourselves that selfie is now, that, that, that was, look, if, if, if you used the word selfie 30 years ago, they would have locked you up. What is that? What's a selfie? Now it's just everything's selfie. Selfie sticks, selfie tripods, so everything's about the selfie. We're using the word so often in our everyday vernacular that it has to be creeping into our sensibilities. But the Bible says, no, 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 look. You should be looking at one another as more significant than yourselves and looking not only to your interests, but the interests of others. 
Well, there's probably no more striking example of how that plays out in a very practical way than the passage that Dean Porcello read for us in John 13, Jesus' example in the upper room. Because what we see in the upper room, it isn't just the example of Jesus that we see in Philippians 2 or that, that Paul refers to in our Christian love for one another through the gospel in Galatians chapter 5, but we actually see in the life and practice of Jesus in John chapter 13. Because Jesus' example in the upper room is one that inextricably ties loving one another to serving one another. In fact, what we know about that passage, and it's probably familiar to, to most of you in the room, is that Jesus says, I've done this for you. You should do it for one another. And then very soon after that, he says, look, I give you a new commandment that you must love one another. They are inextricably tied to one another. Jesus' act of serving his disciples, the example that he gives them in this this. Uh, this sort of vignette, this sort of uh, interaction between himself and his students is tied to his command to love one another. So it's impossible for us to separate, if you will, the idea that we love one another, but we are not serving one another. Jesus ties them together in word and in deed. You know, it's a great passage. It's one of my favorites in the gospel because in this passage, we see that Jesus is uh, taking uh, the time to not just uh, give the disciples an example, but he's thinking about what is to come for them. In fact, my read on this passage is that as Jesus is doing this before the Feast of Passover in that upper room, uh, he knows that his hour had come, John testifies, to depart of this world to the Father. And what he's concerned about is, look, he knows Jesus has been walking with these fellows long enough to know he's the glue holding them together. Look, as soon as Jesus gets out of earshot, the disciples start arguing about who's going to get the good seat or who Jesus likes more. As soon as they get beyond earshot, they're, they're, they're off the tracks. Jesus knows full well he's the glue holding them together. He's confronting them when they're out of line. He's challenging them. He's teaching them. He's about to leave them. I believe this is why he agonized in the garden, asking God not to take them out of the world, but to preserve them from the evil one because he knows when he departs, they're going to splinter, fragment, run away from one another. But in fact, what they need in their darkest hour is Christian fellowship, Christian love, and a bond that will strengthen them in the midst of the hardship that they're going to experience. And Jesus is very clear here. He knows that his hour is coming, and he loved them. And so what he did was during supper, he gets ready, and the Bible says here in verse 3, the, the Father had given all things into his hands, and he'd come from God and was going back to God, so he rose up from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And I can imagine the disciples' reaction. Hold on a second. What's going on here? Jesus just stood up. You know, I think that the disciples are human. They're like all of us. I think that they were completely preoccupied with him. Every move that he makes, everything that he does. So when he stands up and takes off his outer garment, I, I'm, I'm betting you, even if they were in conversations, it's sort of this and, you know, looking, talking to one another, and John says, how are the olives? And Peter says, the wine's really good. And then it's squirrel. Jesus stood up, and they turned right away. They're completely distracted. He stood up and starts taking off his outer garments. Let's pay attention to what Jesus is doing. I don't think he was, I don't think he was doing that without them noticing. I think they were fixed on him. 
And my, my wife gets the, a kick out of our dog. The, the, the dog is complete. It doesn't matter where I am in the house. His face is pointed in that direction. And every move, every, I move my foot six inches and he's running for the door. He's looking for his ball. He's just hanging on it. That's these disciples. They're, they want Jesus' approval. They want to know what he's doing next. And he rises up and he takes off his outer garment. He strips himself and he ties a towel around his waist they got to be thinking, what's next? What's, what's he going to do next? And the Bible says he pours water into a basin and begins to wash their feet and to dry them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Well, you know what happens next. Peter says, this isn't right. And Jesus says, well, if this isn't right, Peter, then we have a bigger problem. And Peter says, no, not only is it right, bathe, bathe, do all of it. Do my head too, right? Not just my feet, do my head. I want, I, I want the extra star, Jesus. I want more approval. If the, and Jesus has to rebuke him and say, no, no, the, the feet are fine, Peter. You're not getting the point here. This isn't about a bath. I'm trying to show you something, right? It's an incredibly human picture of the interaction that was taking place in the room. But then Jesus, knowing their eyes are fixed upon him, knowing that they're watching every move, knowing that they saw what happened between Jesus and Simon Peter, Jesus says to them, listen, listen to me. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And I can imagine that some of them if they weren't thinking it now, would think it later, I won't touch Judas with a 10-foot pole. Peter and I have had our rubs. It's better in the foot-washing time that we're on opposite sides of the room. But that's not what Jesus is saying to them. What I've done for you, you should do for one another. There's a couple things about the Jesus washing of the disciples' feet that stands out to me, always has. Now, some... Christian traditions still practice foot washings. They do it as a symbolic gesture of humbling yourself before one another and serving one another. I have a very funny story of attending the church that my wife grew up in as a total stranger showing up on the day of foot washing, wondering what in the world I just walked into. Complete stranger. I learned later that they'd been doing it all their lives, and they had partners. If it was foot washing Sunday, you, you, you had somebody that you were washing feet with on a fairly regular basis. I'm a complete stranger, and this little older gentleman comes over and sees that I'm without a partner and standing there all alone and offered to sit with me and to wash my feet. If you've never had your feet washed, other than related to a pedicure, it is not just humbling for the person who washes, it's humbling for the person who is being washed. Some years ago, when we were exploring partnerships in Egypt, we attended the garbage, we, were, we visited the garbage village there in a ministry that was being carried out in the midst of that great uh, place of suffering. And we learned that what they do every time a new child came into the school and the, and the ministry, they would wash their feet. They were washing the feet of children who had been climbing through piles of refuse looking for recyclables. They were washing the feet of children who had had their toes bitten by rats who were filthy and cut. The washing of the feet wasn't just ceremonial, it was actually practical. They were washing away filth 
and attending to wounds. We watched this for some time, and then because we're visitors, it was their tradition to wash our feet. While none of us had feet that looked like the feet of those children, it was incredibly humbling to have your feet washed. I would imagine the disciples were not just uh, uh, were not enamored with what Jesus was doing. They were mortified by what he was doing. They couldn't imagine someone doing it to them, that Jesus doing it to them that way. But then he turns it on them and says, no, you're going to do this for one another. The other thing that strikes me is what foot washing was for them and the way that that should be thought of today. It wasn't just ceremonial. It was part of everyday life. It was actually the act of cleaning the feet of his students, which was part of custom and practice normal to that time. Also bear in mind that the primary means of conveyance at this time is walking through dusty streets where carts pulled by animals had been traveling, which means they're not just walking in sand, they're walking in dry, dusty manure. Their feet weren't just dirty, their feet were filthy. There was no one walking around in Gore-Tex Solomons with wicking socks. It's a very different world. So what Jesus does is actually something that is practically beneficial, not just humbling symbolically, it's something that servants did for people. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. Now, here's something I'd like us all to be thinking about. The washing of the feet of the disciples isn't akin to networking or even giving a gift or reposting. It's more like cleaning someone's room, doing their laundry, or carrying something to their car or room for them. It's an act of kindness that is born out of serving one. Let me do something for you that you would do for yourself or have someone else do for you. It's the act of serving. I'm always struck when I bump into somebody in the neighborhood here around Langhorn where some of our students, either an athletic team or a student organization, has come by to rake leaves or clean out gutters for a widow or an elderly couple. It's that act of doing something for someone else that way, that kind of serving that requires something of us and blesses them by taking a burden off of them. Look, for someone who has cleaned his own gutters for 60 plus years, it's a humbling thing to let someone else do it for them. It's a humbling thing to go and do it for someone. But we're to follow the example of Jesus and serve one another in practical ways. I was telling my wife a story this morning about this as an illustration I could barely get through. A few weeks ago, in Dr. Minto's final days, <clears throat> I saw her walking in the hallway carrying her canvas tote to class, and the weight of it was great. And I picked it up from her hand and told her that I would carry it to her class. I walked with her uh, very slowly uh, to her class. When I got to the class, I turned and said to two students, look, do me a favor. Um, when class is over, will you carry this bag and Dr. Minto's books back to her office for her? Without hesitation. They said yes. The next day, Jean sent me a note testifying to how she was blessed by the students being willing to do that. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here in what he did for the disciples. Because serving one another as believers serves the body. 
It keeps us humble. It keeps us equal. It keeps us united. It's an outworking of our faith and the transforming power of the gospel. It pleases God, and it benefits His church. Look, if we're going to take one another seriously, we have to take seriously the teaching and example of Jesus Christ to serve one another, to humble ourselves and to humbly accept the kindness of others as they serve us. When's the last time you poured somebody a drink of coffee or water or some form of refreshment? When's the last time you did a chore for someone else, took a burden off their shoulders, did something that would make their life a little easier? That's the practical outworking of what it means to serve one another. And when we do that for one another in the most simple and practical ways, it's an expression of Christian love and it ties us together in a profound and meaningful way. There are no answers for what ills us in secular assumptions and secular theories and secular assessment tools. The answer for what ails us is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we have benefited from that, it should change the way we think and feel and act toward one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And if you love one another, you should serve one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the power that it has to strengthen our faith, to encourage us, and to exhort us. We pray that your spirit would use this word now to do your work in us, to conform us more to the image of your son Jesus, to give us what is required to follow his teaching and example in all humility and obedience as an outworking of our love for him and his love for us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great weekend.